the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today's program is produced by James Blend. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice is giving up his office for the sake of the cause, so we're grateful to him for that as well. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Horace Cooper. He's a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research and co-chairman of the Project 21 National Advisory Board and a legal commentator. Uh, he is uh, part of a group of African-American leaders who came together after the Ferguson, well, actually it predates the Ferguson riots some five years ago, uh, to address the issues facing African-Americans and how we can um, resolve these issues in a way that is consistent with um, good governance and peace. He's going to join us. We're also going to talk with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS. Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books, is available tomorrow, in fact, for a, a purchase. It will be released. But he spent 445 days in prison with ISIS in the Sudan. He's going to tell us a bit about his story. But more importantly, what role did God play in his uh, imprisonment? And what role did his people play in all of this? So I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. I could literally talk with him all day. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, but we'll spend some time with him and give you just a taste of uh, what he has written in his latest book, which I hope you will take the time to read. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil, published by Salem Books. Well, of course, the top news story has been protests that are response to the death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minnesota. His brother, Terrence Floyd, at an event earlier today, a peaceful demonstration said of his brother George, we want you to remember his name. He said, speaking for the family, we are a peaceful family. And he asked all of those who were um, protesting in violence uh, that they would stop, that it does not help the cause, that they're accomplishing nothing, and this is not what the family wants. There were also family members of others who have lost their lives, uh, African-American men who lost their lives at the hands of police officers, who also said the violence commands attention, but it does not facilitate change. And they asked the violence to stop. What we're witnessing is what I like to refer to as protest tourism. It's something of a theater for many who are involved in these protests. I'm not talking about the legitimate uh, protests in which people are making a legitimate point. I'm talking about the violent um, turn that has been taken by those who are part of an organized effort to divert attention away from the main issue uh, to trying to undermine uh, this republic. Peaceful protesters are being co-opted by violent demonstrators who exploit the situation and dilute the message. We're talking about violent demonstrators who exploit the situation and dilute the message, divert our attention away from what actually happened. Earlier today, Terrence Floyd, the brother of George Floyd, who was whose life was taken by a police officer whose knee on his neck deprived him of his oxygen, said he was speaking for the family. He said, we are a peaceful family. We do not want this violence. And I so appreciated the emphasis that he made. He said, what are you accomplishing? Absolutely nothing. He said, I want you to remember my brother's name, George Floyd. 
George Floyd. In fact, he had the group chant George Floyd, and he uh, rebuked the notion of violence. Peace on the left, justice on the right. That's the phrase that they settled on, suggesting no justice, no peace. That if you want peace, there has to be justice. And unless there's justice, there can be no peace. The uh, Those who um, divert attention away toward violence, um, they command attention, but they do not facilitate change. Justice deferred is justice denied, and it must be uh, the case here. Now, already the individual whose knee was on the neck of George Floyd, resulting in his death, has been arrested he has been charged with third-degree murder, and the uh, Floyd family has released earlier today the autopsy of uh, George Floyd, indicating that he died of asphyxiation. Now, that's significant because if the cause of death, w- death was heart uh, failure, if he had a heart attack during this encounter, which would not have happened unless the counter had taken place, then lesser charges would have been filed. If he dies of asphyxiation, then you can argue in court um, that first-degree murder charges are more appropriate in this casing. Uh, in this case. Now, one of the things that I appreciate that Dr. Martin Luther King said, and I was reminded by Dan Rice over the weekend, was that returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I would turn your attention to an article in Christianity Today about George Floyd, telling us a little about his background. He grew up and uh, was a fixture in Texas before moving to Uh, Minnesota, but he was a man of peace. He facilitated ministries coming into the projects where he and his family lived uh, to try to facilitate peace. Uh, This was a man of character. Uh, And as we consider these events uh, that are taking place, I think we need to take a very sober look at our nation's history and what has uh, what has transpired and be prepared to do something. It's nothing more than to hold those in positions of authority to a greater accountability. Um, police brutality, it seems to me, not just uh, black on white or b- white on black, but police brutality in general among that small percentage of law enforcement that uh, abuse their power is an issue that must be addressed. Anyway, we're going to talk later in the program with Horace Cooper. He's a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research, and he's a co-chairman of the Project 21 National Advisory Board. This is a group of conservative African Americans who have confronted these issues head on for many, many years. Uh, And one of the things that uh, they have said, and we'll talk with Horace about that, is the left is fighting uh, for blacks, in quotes, while also demolishing our neighborhoods and ruining our lives, destroying the very businesses and residents um, that minority communities have worked so hard to create. So we'll talk with Morris, uh, uh, Horace Cooper about that a, lit, a, a bit later in the program. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the nationwide riots sparked by the death of George Floyd escalated to extraordinary levels in the nation's capital on Sunday night. U.S. Marshals and Drug Enforcement Administration agents were deployed into the streets of D.C., Um, uh, to beef up security alongside local police, Secret Service, Homeland Security agents, the Justice Department confirmed. U.S. Attorney for D.C. Mike Sherwin is heavily involved in the operation as well. Well, the senior official in the direct chain of command for defending Washington, D.C., said that at least 50 Secret Service officers were um, Sunday night uh, present and that some rioters were throwing bottles and Molotov cocktails, as observed in the New York City and elsewhere. Groups in D.C. are planting cars 
um, filled with incendiary materials and so on. In addition, the entire Washington, D.C. National Guard was being called in to help with a response to protests outside the White House and elsewhere in the nation's capital, according to two Defense Department officials. Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser said that Sunday she had requested 500 D.C. guardsmen to assist local law enforcement. Later on Sunday, as the protesters uh, protests rather escalated, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy ordered the rest of the guardsmen, roughly 1,200 soldiers, to report. Lights that normally illuminate the exterior of the White House were disabled early Monday morning, reportedly so that the Secret Service could use night vision equipment to monitor protesters. Authorities clashed with demonstrators for the third straight night. The parish house uh, connected with historic St. John's Episcopal Church across the street from the White House was set afire late uh, Sunday. The parish house contains uh, offices and parlors for gatherings and much more. And other related developments... Uh, the president's uh, on violent protesters said, where are the arrests and long-term jail sentences? He says, you must overwhelm the protesters. A semi-trailer sped toward a crowd of protesters in Minneapolis on the bridge. The driver has been arrested and miraculously, as was said by the police chief, no injuries were reported and no deaths. The famed D.C. monuments have been defaced after nights of uh, 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 protests that continue with curfews uh, here and all across the country. Well, chaos broke out in several major U.S. cities, I believe um, 120, 150 of them uh, over the weekend, over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, In uh, addition to the violence in Washington, rioters clashed with police in New York City, Los Angeles. People still out on the streets were acting like terrorists, according to some assessments. The National Guard's top general on Sunday said guard units in nearly half of U.S. states have been mobilized to help major cities deal with the riots. And one of the unfortunate elements, I mean, there are many, is that the attention is shifted away from George Floyd and what happened to him to the riots. Uh, the moral authority is being drained away from that uh, conversation, that debate, those peaceful protests onto uh, what's happening across the country. Now, we're just about out of time. We'll continue to wind our way through uh, some of the top news stories. So stay with us. Also, a reminder, Horace Cooper will join us a bit later in the program to talk about what black activists are saying nationwide about the rioting. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Horace Cooper about what some black activists are saying with regard to the rioting. They're condemning it, saying the left is fighting for blacks while also demolishing our neighborhoods and ruining our lives. We'll also talk with Peter Yashik. He's the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. He, for 445 days, was just that, imprisoned with ISIS. We'll hear more about his story when he joins us in the second hour of today's program. Well, health officials across the country have new concerns that the nationwide protests uh, could spark a wider spread of the coronavirus after many cities reported bringing the virus under control. Scott Gottlieb, the former Food and Drug Administration commissioner, told CBS News Face the Nation that there are still some pockets of spread in communities. He said there has been an uptick in new coronavirus cases in recent days at the epicenter of the protests. Minnesota Health Department spokesman Doug Schultz said on Sunday that any spike from the protests will not be uh, seen until six to ten days after its transmission. The Star Tribune reported uh, and pointed out that the Minneapolis provided hundreds of masks for protesters. Governor Tim Wall said, according to the paper, that he is deeply concerned about a super spreader type of incident. Uh, after this, we are going to see a spike in COVID-19. It is inevitable, end quote. Well, the U.S. has seen more than 1.7 million infections 
and over 104,000 deaths in the pandemic, which has disproportionately affected racial minorities. Another uh, development, big city Democrats are imposing strict coronavirus lockdowns, are now letting Floyd rioters flout the rules, and some are questioning why the double standard. And health officials in the U.S. are concerned that the uh, protests uh, could uh, broaden even further. Demonstrators in the last week have uh, been seen in packed locations, not practicing social distancing. Many were without masks as they chanted, shouted, and sang, which creates more aspiration. Uh, the virus is said to be dispersed by microscopic droplets in the air when people cough, sneeze, talk, and sing. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has urged protesters to get tested for the virus. Health officials' fears uh, come amid optimism in the treatment of coronavirus. Gilead scientists said on Monday that remdesivir, the experimental drug being tested for COVID-19, showed that 65% of moderately ill patients had improvement after 11 days. There's also some cautious optimism in Colorado as officials on Monday reported no new deaths linked directly to the novel coronavirus for the second straight day. Coronavirus deaths in the Centennial State have continued to decline since peaking in mid-April, the Denver Post reported. Well, the city of Wuhan, China, where the COVID-19 outbreak first emerged, recently launched a campaign to test every one of its 11 million residents for the virus. Less than two weeks into the drive, the city has tested about 6.5 million residents, according to the New York Times. Well, U.S. cities could adopt a similar pool testing strategy to screen many residents at Uh, at once and keep abreast of new waves of infection, but the approach only works as long as the overall prevalence of COVID-19 remains low, according to experts. And then there are questions about whether or not the Chinese have um, given an accurate report. Cancer patients infected with COVID-19 had a much higher risk of dying within a month than non-coronavirus COVID-19 patients, recent study has said. And small business owners already devastated by the coronavirus shutdown in several metropolitan cities are wondering whether, uh, whether they'll be able to economically recover after protests in reaction to George Floyd's death turned violent and rioters destroyed storefronts. Connecticut um, uh, met Governor uh, Ned Lamont's ambitious deadline for launching a coronavirus contact tracing program. A municipal uh, health director said it could be weeks before it's actually effective, according to a report. As economic activity resumes in China following the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic, levels of the air pollutant nitrogen dioxide are rising to traditional standards for the first time this year. And Deputy NHL Commissioner Bill Daly said the league plans to test all players every day for COVID-19 if the season resumes. And as restaurants and bars remain closed due to the coronavirus pandemic, home sales of alcohol and beer saw a significant increase. Now, as these businesses are reopening, liquor delivery services are reportedly still seeing growth. Well, on this day in history, 1813, the mortally wounded commander of the USS Chesapeake, Captain James Lawrence, gives the order... Don't give up the ship during the losing battle with the British frigate HMS Shannon in the War of 1812. And the phrase remains alive today. On this day in history, 1980, Cable News Network, or CNN, makes its debut. 2009, General Motors files for Chapter 11, becoming the largest U.S. industrial company to enter bankruptcy protection. Citigroup, Inc. and General Motors Corp. are removed from Dow Jones. Well, governors, mayors, and others are seeking answers to the mayhem, while celebrities post bail for rioters and looters, not for those who have lost their livelihoods. They're choosing uh, to uh, support the rioters and looters over the victims. The Joe Biden staff also donated to the group that is bailing out criminals. 
Justin Timberlake joined the bailing out of uh, criminals as well. They got $200,000 from model and liberal activist Chrissy Teigen as well. What about the mom and pop small businesses and other um, business owners who um, were owned by, many of whom were owned by minorities in those communities who had nothing whatsoever to do with the events that led to the mayhem? I would refer you to comments I made earlier in the program. Well, the mayors of Atlanta and Denver were excellent in distinguishing between peaceful protest and violent destruction, and there is a big difference. Others have encouraged rage against police and so-called social justice uh, prosecutors have risen uh, to power in such cities as Philadelphia, San Francisco, and St. Louis. Now we'll see if they protect the neighborhoods they claim to represent against violent mobs. The same goes for media and intellectuals who are in general portraying the riots as an understandable response to social injustice. Now that despite the fact that uh, the brother of the murdered man has indicated that their family does not want to see this violence continue, that this is contrary to uh, the core values of George Floyd himself, that he would not have supported this kind of response, and others who lost loved ones in su- under similar circumstances also made the same point. They're looking for peaceful protests that will actually accomplish something. Terrence Floyd made the point, what are you accomplishing? Absolutely nothing. This is about my brother, George Floyd. I want you to remember his name, to remember the circumstances of his death, and to seek justice, not only for him, but to prevent similar events from occurring in the future. Most of them live far from the burning neighborhoods as they denounce police. I'm talking about celebrities and others who are supporting the protesters. Most of them live far away. They ignore that there is no chance of addressing social injustice without underlying civil order. The main victims of a summer of chaos in America will be the poor and minority neighborhoods going up in flames. And those are, for the most part, the neighborhoods that are going up in flames. Uh, From Donald Trump on Sunday afternoon, other Democrats run cities and states should look at the total shutdown of radical left anarchists in Minneapolis last night. The National Guard did a great job and should be used in other states before it's too late. In fact, Mayor Wheeler in the city of Portland is now called in the National Guard here. From former Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young, he says two other groups came to town, Antifa and Boogaloo Boys. Uh, are provocateurs taking advantage of this all over the nation. We are clearly unprepared for this nationally. Larry Elder points out Saturday night, Los Angeles mayor uh, finally called in the National Guard about 100 stores too late. The mayor of Minneapolis had to walk back his statement that every person arrested was from out of state. He also wants rioters to wear masks and practice social distancing, not really compatible with self-destruction and the destruction of others' property. Shane Harris says we are now hearing from local authorities. Of the 57 people arrested in protest-related incidents through Saturday morning, 47, or 82 percent, provided a Minnesota address to authorities. Um, The spokesperson for the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office confirms California Governor Gavin Newsom says as the violence raged, millions of people are lifting their voices in anger, rightfully outraged at the systematic racism that persists in America. Our state and nation must build from this moment united and more resolved than ever to address the reality of racism and its root causes. Well, here, here for that, but doing so with violent acts is certainly not the way to go. It further divides the nation and deprives minority communities of economic Uh, the possibility and potential of economic prosperity. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments. We're winding our way through some of the news headlines of the day. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, after three nights of demonstrations here in Portland, Mayor Ted Wheeler held a news conference this morning to address the city's response, adding that he's asked Governor Kate Brown to activate the National Guard in the city. Portland police said early Monday that 12 adults have been arrested. Two youths have been detained after Sunday night's protest. The figure isn't final, and no information about the people arrested was immediately available. Mayor Wheeler uh, lauded the mostly peaceful protesters who turned out Sunday while decrying those who chose to engage in violence. And there is a distinction between the two. They were a small handful from amongst thousands of peaceful demonstrators, the mayor said. But Billy Williams, the U.S. District Attorney for the District of Oregon, said law enforcement agencies in the city needed outside assistance. We need help. I'm asking the governor of Oregon to activate the National Guard. We need action now. This can't go on. Well, Mayor Wheeler said he had asked the governor to deploy the guard on Sunday, but she'd suggested other alternatives, including additional resources from the Oregon State Police. If troops were to be deployed in the city, Wheeler said, they would be focused on protecting property and buildings like the Justice Center so local police would be able to focus on crowd control. Meanwhile, President Trump announced Sunday that the U.S. government will designate the far-left group Antifa as a terrorist organization. This comes as the president has blamed Antifa for riots taking place across the country in response to the death of George Floyd, the unarmed black man who died in uh, on the 25th while in police custody in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after an officer knelt on his um, neck for more than eight minutes in an incident caught on video. The United States of America will be uh, designating Antifa as a terrorist organization, the president tweeted on Sunday afternoon. Now, it remains unclear exactly who was behind the escalation that began uh, with peaceful protests against police with accusations lobbed against both far left extremists and white nationalists. The president has been forceful in pointing the finger at the former. It's Antifa and the radical left. Don't let the blame. uh, Don't lay the blame on others. The president tweeted. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was less decisive in stating who is behind the looting, arson and violence that's taken place. While they called rioters Antifa-like during the appearance on Fox News Sunday morning futures, he said, I think it still remains to be seen exactly how the situation devolved from a peaceful protest to something entirely different. When I speak later in the program with Horace Cooper, we'll talk about how that devolution takes place and the fact that there's more than one group that could be... uh, labeled in that way. But who is Antifa? Uh, Willamette Week first published a piece on the subject back in February, and they uh, pointed out that Antifa is a far-left militant movement that calls itself anti-fascist, using fascist tactics in the process, has no defined organizational hierarchy or membership process. The collection of autonomous Antifa groups is mostly left-wing cities, Uh, sees itself as a descendant of the European anti-Nazi movement and generally agrees that the best way to combat ideas they find odious is not through speech or debate, but by direct action and physical confrontation. Now, the first modern Antifa group traces its roots back to Portland back in 2007, and more than a decade later, that's been a hotbed for many Antifa members' preferred activities, threatening and violently assaulting journalists, declaring that all police officers should be killed or at least fired, wearing dark clothing and ski masks that sometimes obscure their artificially colored hair, and even engaging in uh, performative clashes with right-wing groups to urban life. Antifa was present during the infamous and deadly August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The event saw violent clashes between white supremacists, individual protesting the removal of a Confederate statute, and left-wings, uh, left-wing groups. In a haunting moment caught on video, a neo-Nazi drove a car into a crowd of um, anti-protesters, killing one. Just a little bit of that history, but there are other groups by other names who see this as an opportunity to um, establish revolution. 
In other news, a divided Supreme Court on Friday rejected an emergency appeal by a California church that challenged state limits on attendance at worship services that have been imposed to contain the spread of coronavirus. Over the dissent of the four more conservative justices, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's four liberals in turning away a request from the South Bay United Pentecostal Church in Chula Vista, California, in the San Diego area. The church argued that limits on how many people can attend their services violate constitutional guarantees of religious freedom and had been seen as an order in um, the time of their service on Sunday. The church said it has crowds of two to 300 people for its services. Well, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the Supreme Court's four liberals in turning away a request from the South Bay United Pentecostal Church. Roberts wrote a brief opinion that the restrictions allowing churches to reopen at 25% of their capacity with no more than 100 worshipers at a time appear consistent with the First Amendment. Roberts said similar or more severe limits apply to concerts, movies, and sporting events where large groups of people gather in close proximity for extended periods of time. And SpaceX Dragon Endeavor spacecraft Accrued by NASA astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob uh, Benkin, uh, docked with the International Space Station on an historic Demo 2 mission. The spacecraft launched atop the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center on Saturday. The mission is the first time that astronauts have launched from American soil since the final space shuttle flight in 2011. The mission is also the first time a private company, rather than a national government, has sent astronauts Uh, The spacecraft made its soft-captured docking with the International Space Station at 10.16 Eastern time after an almost 19-hour journey to the orbiting space lab. The space station has 262 statue miles above the uh, border of northern northern China, rather, and Mongolia when the docking occurred. A hard-capture docking was complete at 10.28 a.m. Eastern time with a full docking sequence complete two minutes later. Well, happy to be aboard, said Hurley, when the capsule was docked. It was an historic moment. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Horace Cooper, senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research, co-chairman of the Project 21 National Advisory Board, and a legal commentator. We'll talk about what black activists are saying in their condemnation of nationwide rioting. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And, of course, we're continuing our coverage of events that are taking place all across the Fruited Plain in response to the unlawful killing of George Floyd. I was so struck by his brother who spoke earlier today at an event and speaking for the family saying, we are peaceful. The violent demonstrations are accomplishing nothing. One of the organizations that I have a great deal of respect for is Project 21. And joining us is Horace Cooper. He's a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research, co-chairman of the Project 21 National Advisory Board, and a legal commentator to talk about what black activists are saying about the uh, nationwide rioting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for giving us this opportunity. You know, I don't know about you, but my family, and we're African-American, we got together this weekend and we talked about the events that are unfolding and and how unproductive uh, much of the violent protests have been. The peaceful protests are being co-opted by violent demonstrators who exploit and dilute the message. It's a sort of protest tourism, if you will. What are leaders like yourself saying about these events and the impact this is having on the issue, which is George Floyd and the African-American community in general? Well, there's clearly no doubt that there is an organized group of individuals who wish to exploit this uh, for other purposes. Um, What happened here in Minneapolis at the hands of a police officer was tragic. And in fact, 
deserving of our attention and a response. And I trusted then, as I trust now, that the legal system is going to properly respond to it. What these other groups are trying to do is turn this tragedy into an opportunity for revolution. Now, you mix that with a pandemic that has uh, uh, required people to be shut-ins for an extended period of time and a delay even in reopening. And what you see are folks who also are prepared to come out, not to exploit it in the way that the radical groups are, but they're they're telling themselves, this is probably the only way I'm going to get out of where I am right now. I'm stuck here. I don't have a job. I don't have any other activities. And that is a toxic combination. If we only had 5% of the turnout in terms of participation in this protest, you'd easily be able to see who the crazies are and who the legitimate people are. But because of the power of the pandemic keeping people locked in, you're seeing double, triple, quadruple size. Now, it's good for American people to exercise their constitutional rights, but it's perfect for the radicals to, to exploit this, and they are willing, this is what's so terrible, they are willing to use the destruction of the businesses, the real estate, and the resources of the, quote, very group that they claim they are there to support. It is going to take a long period for black middle-class businesses to get back to where they were in 2020 as a result of what these radicals have done. Mm. Now, one of the things that Project 21 does is to uh, be constructive in the midst of serious issues like this one. For example, on the five-year anniversary of the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, um, members of the group met with the mayor there, the city council members of that city. You came up with a blueprint for a better deal for black America, which is a constructive move forward, which extends the conversation in a way that has the potential to make real change. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the things that we continue to push for is the idea that we move away from using law enforcement for revenue enforcement. It has been easy for a number of communities to just, instead of telling Americans, this is what it costs for us to provide the services that we do, they set up fees, they set up fines, they set up penalties, and they use the law enforcement to carry them out. If the IRS came knocking on your door every week saying, oh, by the way, you need to give us $2,000, not only would the IRS be even substantially less popular than they are today, they would start to see pushback, sometimes in a way that might lead to violence. Our view is let law enforcement do crime enforcement, break-ins, burglaries, assaults, rapes, robberies, those kinds of things let law enforcement do. But when it comes to you didn't get your car um, uh, registered or inspected, let's let a non-law enforcement handle that. 
if it comes to your grass is too high, let's let a non-law enforcement entity handle that. So that when people see law enforcement, they see it for what most middle and upper middle income people see. People who are helping to prevent the kind of violence and mayhem. But if they start, as, if, if, if Main Street America middle-class, upper-middle-class America saw law enforcement the way our working-class people do, the way our lower-income people do, you would see a level of hostility and enmity among the Main Street toward law enforcement. One of our planks in our blueprint is let law enforcement stick to law enforcement and let the revenue function the penalty function, the fines function. Let's let another entity handle that, one that doesn't carry a firearm and one that doesn't require an escalation that could result in the use of deadly force. Now, earlier today, the um, family, the Floyd family, released an autopsy for George Floyd that indicated he died of asphyxiation, which apparently is significant because um, that might merit a first-degree murder charge as opposed to the third-degree murder charge that was uh, issued to, to the officer who was responsible for the neck on or the, the knee on the neck of Mr. Uh, Floyd. Uh, I, I know one of the issues in all of this is what kinds of charges are going to be filed and whether or not the other three officers will be charged. From your legal perspective, will that help to resolve some of the issues that has um, caused things to escalate? Okay, first thing I want to say, and I want to say this in the most ginger way possible, what was done to this gentleman was completely unjustified, was unlawful, and horrific. But if we were to grab the officers and put them up against a wall, take a pistol to the back of their head and shoot them, what that would make us unjustified, unfair, unlawful. We must not yield to the temptation that uh, mob violence is the solution. When you look at the statutes, you determine whether or not something meets that test. Most deaths are not considered first-degree homicides. Most are not. And we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we insist on asking for a charge that jury will refuse, a jury made up of, of people who are peers, who will refuse to select. We absolutely need to let the law guide mm-hmm. us, not a rush to judgment. I'm not so interested in the specific charge because I believe that no matter what charge ultimately is provided, he is going to receive the upper end. All of the parties involved are going to receive the upper upper end. If it's a minimum of five years and a maximum of 25, he's going to be closer to the 25 than he is to the five. The second thing is it is normal in a prosecution process for them to assess evidence and then file new charges. Sometimes they go in and they say, we're going to have additional. We have multiple counts we want to add, or we're replacing counts. The idea that you would start with a count 
that you can't yet demonstrate mm-hmm. satisfactorily that you can prove is a harm to the process of justice, not actually a help. I would look at the fact that the um, Attorney General of Minnesota is likely going to be overseeing this case and is going to see to it that whatever appropriate sanctions can occur will occur. Now, that's what I say if you're a reasoned person that you would be satisfied by. Not the idea if they didn't take him up against the wall, pull the firearm out and shoot them, that that's proof that there is no justice in America. That would make us no different than what ended up happening to Mr. Floyd. Mm. Are you optimistic that things will de-escalate and will return to the issues surrounding this case, uh, the charges against the officer, the investigative process that has to precede those charges in a trial and all of that? Are you optimistic that we're moving in that direction, or what do you think needs to happen to achieve that goal? Well, I'm concerned, again, as I mentioned earlier, um, it could be 10 years before my communities that have been harmed by the demonstrations up to this point can make that back up. During the Great Recession, when Barack Obama was president, it took almost the entirety of his eight years for black Americans to get back to where they were before the recession began, even though the official econometric measure said that recession ended two years into his administration. Eight years for black America, two years is the official reckoning. I am greatly concerned, and I want governors, I want mayors to emphasize there is absolutely no reason, no justification for destroying property, to destroy investment, life savings, and to particularly let this happen in black communities. That really hurts my heart that in the name of protesting for the rights of blacks, people are literally setting blacks back a decade. I am hopeful that working with this White House, working um, with those who are concerned in the law enforcement community, even those who work in the state National Guards, that they will work with those mayors, work with those governors, and turn this around. This cannot continue on the course that it's on. Mm. Horace Cooper, thank you so much. The Voice of Reason, appreciate your talking with us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Again, Horace Cooper is a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research and co-chairman of the Project 21 National Advisory Board. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. December 10th, 2015 is a day that my guest, Peter Yashik, will never forget. He was in Khartoum, Sudan, ready to go home to his wife and children in the Czech Republic when he was forcefully detained by airport security and accused of being a spy. Well, that was only the start of his prison journey because of his work helping persecuted believers in Sudan through Voice of the Martyrs. He was imprisoned in Sudan with very little food, no real medical care, yet his faith in God was stronger than ever. But the challenges were mounting. He's uh, made record of that experience in his latest book to be released tomorrow, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And this story that releases on the 2nd of June 
He tells that story, the opposition he faced no matter where he turned, who his roommates were, and how God came alongside and strengthened him through this challenge. Well, my guest, Peter Yashik, is the son of a pastor who was persecuted in communist Czechoslovakia, as well as equipped to join the voice of of the martyrs um, in 2002 to help persecuted Christians in hostile areas and restricted nations. Today, Peter serves with Voice of the Martyrs as their global ambassador, traveling around the world to speak about his imprisonment in Sudan and encouraging believers to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer and in action. We are so uh, thankful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, everybody. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about the nation of Sudan at the time the events that you write about took place. Um, describe for us the persecution that Sudanese believers were facing. If you visit the country of Sudan, if you would have visited that uh, country at that time, you know you would have uh, you would, could uh, get easily the false impression, you know, that uh, there is a certain level of uh, freedom because you would see churches from various denominations, you would go see people going in and coming out. Uh, but uh, the major problem starts when uh, the person uh, would uh, follow Christ's great commission, which means to make disciples of all people, uh, including the Muslim majority. You know, otherwise, if uh, Christians just uh, uh, had uh, were practicing their Christian life inside the churches, uh, they could live uh, more or less a free life. You know, they were certainly experiencing some persecution, especially if they were not wealthy enough to send their children to uh, private schools, they would have to memorize Quran with the Muslim fellow students, uh, they would suffer uh, some persecution, uh, you know, from the employees, uh, I mean employers, because, you know, the uh, em- Christian employees would always um, have more difficulties uh, to find jobs, uh, you know, compared to their Muslim neighbors. Uh, but the major problem started when Christians um, uh, started to share the gospel with uh, their uh, Muslim fellow neighbors, which is illegal even now in Sudan, uh, and at that time was um, highly, uh, they were highly persecuted for that. And, uh, you know, I heard about that persecution uh, when I attended a conference in uh, Ethiopia in October 2015, and I uh, heard compelling testimonies, you know, exactly of uh, what happens when there is a person like a Muslim background believer, you know, it is illegal mm-hmm. still now, and it was illegal at that time, uh, to convert from Islam to any other religion. And I heard, I saw pictures of an injured uh, young Muslim background believer student that, uh, you know, became a believer during his studies in Khartoum University. And I also saw pictures of churches, uh, uh, church buildings completely demolished just because their pastors were actively encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission. So that was what brought me there at that time. And unfortunately, the situation is still very similar, even though, you know, we hear some news about some changes, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, President Bashir was removed by... You should know that the situation is also, uh, you know, very interesting, because the guy who led the coup uh, was um, uh, Ibn Uf, which was a cousin 
of uh, President Bashir and married to his daughter. So what can you expect? Mm. You know, what uh, can what good can come out of this uh, uh, coup? You know, and then the power was handed over to people that were very cruel, uh, that are actually on the list of the ICC as uh, wanted criminals. In your book, you point out that for three decades, the Sudanese government had targeted Christians along with those who aren't ethnically Arab for extermination. So this was extermination. That is the the most extreme. Uh, And since the uh, former president um, rose to power in 1989 through a military coup and established a strict form of Islamic law throughout the country, his brutal regime intimidated, arrested, imprisoned, and tortured Christians. You had traveled there as a representative of Uh, voice of the martyrs to meet with persecuted Christians to do research what was the purpose of your trip that was only expected to take four days yeah you know I uh, should uh, understand that when I visited countries uh, restricted like country of Sudan I could not come as an official representative of uh, Mm -hmm. the organization called VOM because, you know, I always had to come uh, secretly, you know, unnoticed, you know, like a tourist, because if they would know that there is uh, someone who wants to document uh, the persecution of Christians, they would immediately probably ban me from entering the country. So, uh, yeah, I had a good plan for these four days. I had secret meetings. I had uh, uh, everything carefully prepared. But, of course, you know, in country of Sudan, it was not very difficult uh, to uh, follow a Westerner, you know, in the country that has, uh, you know, so many secret policemen, uh, uh, you know, that are work secret policemen that are uh, going back and forth, you know, they're monitoring the foreigners that's very easy for them to monitor and of course i could expect that but uh, i w- i thought that you know my mission was completed i have uh, uh, accomplished what i wanted i met and interviewed the uh, injured muslim background believer i also uh, visited the sites of the demolished churches even though it was uh, it had to be at night and i could not uh, uh, take photos because, uh, you know, with the flash I would be immediately noticed. But I had that good, uh, you know, feeling that my mission was completed, but uh, only when I was holding the boarding passes in my hand, that was the moment when I got arrested by secret police. Now, the, the pictures and the material that you just described, I understand they were encrypted on your computer, so they would not be easily accessed. When you were um, arrested at the airport, what were you told you were being charged with? What was the purpose of that arrest? I was not uh, told much uh, when I was arrested in the airport because, you know, uh, those people spoke very poor English. You know, I tried French, uh, German, Russian, you know, all the languages that I speak. And my Arabic at that time was not fluent, so I could not speak in Arabic. Uh, But, uh, you know, they just wanted my computer, my laptop, my cell phone, my camera, video camera. So I understood, you know, that they wanted to search it and I didn't want to give them passwords for that. So eventually, you know, um, my uh, time before the departure was getting shorter and uh, it was obvious that I will miss that flight. 
And then I was uh, transferred to the headquarters of the CK police. And then they started the proper interrogation, you know, with the person who spoke uh, good English. And then I understood that they were monitoring me, you know, my activities. And of course, you know, um, if you delete some stuff from your laptop, you know, which I or from your camera, you know, it is obvious that uh, uh, that was probably my mistake that I didn't do properly because I was supposed to overwrite the empty space uh, after the deleting the files, you know, uh, especially in my camera with the special software that I had available at the time. But uh, I just deleted them. I did not anticipate such a detailed scrutiny of uh, of my memory card, and of course, you know, then uh, you uh, if you have some other memory cards or sticks or uh, external hard drives, you know, if if it's something that is empty, unless it is uh, rewritten or reformatted or with a special program, uh, there can be always something uh, digged out of it, and that was actually the case. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, uh, this afternoon, we're talking with my guest, Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is available tomorrow, published by Salem Books. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book. It is his story told in some detail to give you some indication of what persecuted believers face um, when the enemy captures them and uh, experience imprisonment. Now, you had come to uh, minister to and to learn more about persecuted believers in Sudan you had just become, as you told us before the break, you had just become one of those persecuted believers. Tell us about your first experience when you were ultimately imprisoned and who your fellow cellmates were. You know, I was after nearly 24 hours interrogation in the headquarters of the Sikhi police, I was uh, transferred to the first prison. You know, I went through five different prisons in Sudan, but of course the first one was uh, the first negative experience with being imprisoned, you know, in a foreign country, and that prison was the prison of the secret police. And uh, even though the conditions uh, were very bad, you know, and there was uh, a lot of uh, humidity, mold, and uh, insects, and kinds of uh, uh, things that were very unpleasant, you know, the, uh, what was much more uh, unpleasant was actually that I found, found out uh, the next uh, morning, you know, that I'm actually imprisoned with six members of Islamic State. And I found it very easily because, you know, they asked me about uh, uh, some of the events, you know, what is going on in the world. These people are actually completely cut off from all information from uh, the outside world. There's no radio, no newspaper, no television. And uh, when I told them, you know, that what happened about uh, three weeks before my time in prison, you know, when uh, in Paris, uh, during uh, coordinated attacks of Islamic State, uh, uh, 129 people died, were killed actually by Muslim extremists. Uh, they interrupted me and they uh, burst uh, bursted in a mm -hmm. celebration uh, of uh, 
shouting Allahu Akbar for several minutes and uh, hugging each other, rejoicing that 129 infidels got killed. That was the moment when I realized that I am amidst of these ISIS people. And of course, later on, they uh, clearly identify themselves. I got uh, more information about each individual, you know, how, uh, what did they do, you know, um, for instance, you know, there were a Libyan guy who at the age of uh, 12 was sent by his father to be a person, a bodyguard of Osama bin Laden, you know, and this guy was uh, treated with high respect from the other people. And uh, they used to call him a man of sword. And I actually thought that it was this was the title was because of his work with Osama bin Laden. But only when he after he was transferred to other cell, I found out that the true reason of him being called a man of sword was not being bodyguard of Osama, but being a member of the uh, you know squad that actually beheaded the 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians and one African Christian on the Libyan shore in February of 2015 just a few months before he was with me in the same cell you know i could say he you know in in a, a figurative way that he still had the fresh human blood on his hands and that was very shocking you know and not only that but there were some other conditions like you know i have lost um, in the first three months, uh, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. You know, I after one month they uh, realized that I was actually when I was transferred to the hospital that I lost half of my blood and being heavily anemic and malnourished, that made the whole um, life in this prison cell with the ISIS guys a lot more complicated and hard. And th then now, now I come, you know, to the point that I realized, you know, and. Uh, my major concern at first was not that I would die in this prison, uh, but that I would l rather lose my sound mind. Because, you know, I was witnessing not only five times per day prayers, but I could not have a Bible. They could have Korans. They were reading Korans, uh, uh, you know, the whole day if they were not sleeping or eating. Uh, and uh, all of that, you know, was um, kind of, you know, uh, war, I was worried that I may lose my sound mind and I started to pray and ask the Lord, you know, please keep my mind sound. You know, I was not that much surprised that I am in prison because, you know, I consider based on what the Bible teaches about persecution, that persecution is actually an essential part of a Christian life. The Lord Jesus pre was uh, preparing his followers that they will be persecuted and he didn't promise them that always they will be released from persecution like I was. Uh, he said even some of you will be killed. You know, when you read what Paul was teaching his followers and he said uh, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy 3.12. So I was teaching others and encouraging others uh, that the persecution is an essential part of the Christian life so how could I be surprised but of course you know when day uh, by day week by week months by months you know I started to ask the Lord how long Lord how long I will have to be in this prison mm. uh, in addition to being housed in the same cell a cell that as you describe it was really intended for an individual but there were several of you there so the condition in of itself was unbearable but you were tortured regularly uh, at the glee of your ISIS, um, your Islamic State uh, cellmates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it started with uh, my freedom being of movement in this cell that was 
very crowded. I know it sounds a little bit strange, you know, how could you move, but you can still move in the small space. You know, I was uh, not allowed to cross, uh, you know, when they were they were walking from one end to the other end. Uh, I was not allowed to speak on my own. I only had, uh, I was supposed to answer their questions. And uh, later on, they started to slander me with bad words. I was not called Peter anymore by them. I was called, you know, Khinzir, in which in Arabic means a filthy pig. And uh, they call me filthy pig, come here, filthy pig, go there, you know, so that was like that, or filthy rat. And uh, shortly after that, they started to uh, slap my face, beat me with their fist to my face, uh, uh, or later on, they used a wooden stick and they uh, were beating me with the wooden stick, or they were kicking me with their shoes, with their legs, with their shoes on, and uh, or they try to invent um, uh, ways uh, how to make my position very uncomfortable that when I was released from that position I could not walk I could not stand because of the pain you know after being in a very uncomfortable position for a long time but that all was the moment you know when I realized that uh, you know the words of Apostle Paul that he says in um, uh, 2nd Corinthians 12 10 he says when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we reach uh, the bottom of our physical or emotional strength, uh, then we can experience the Lord's strength. And I was able to pray for those people. I was able to, um, you know, even turn my other cheek when they were beating me. And I can honestly tell you, it was not me who was able to turn the other cheek. It was actually Christ in me who was able to turn the other cheek to them and also to share the gospel with them. And, I, you know, I was experiencing such a moments of peace, you know, even when, especially actually when I was being beaten by them. And their um, effort to, uh, they always came, you know, with new ways of uh, torturing me. And eventually they came with the idea that they will do the waterboarding on me. And, uh, you know, they uh, made everything ready for that. You know, they even convinced the guards to move uh, seven of us from our cell where there was no running water to the other cell, the only cell actually on that floor that had running water so that they could do the waterboarding. You know, they prepared some cloth, you know, that they could cover my face with and when everything was ready uh, on that morning you know uh, the lord intervened in the last moment but i have learned was being with these guys you know one other big lesson you know the power of prayer you know i was amidst of my enemies literally not knowing when they will slap me kick me or uh, use the fist to my face or use the wooden stick and, uh, you know, after all the, the five days prayers in the evening, you know, I could say that the nightlife started in the cell. And, uh, you know, they could stay awake till maybe 2 a.m. talking, you know, with each other. And, of course, you know, I was very tired. And at 9 p.m., I was able to peacefully lay down and fall asleep. Uh, and I was amazed, you know, uh, why am I able to fall asleep amidst of my enemies? And that happened every night. And only two months later, when I started to receive letters from my family, I found out why I was able to fall asleep. You know, in my home church, 
people were praying for me. They were mm. fasting. And especially, you know, at 8 p.m., the Czech Republic winter time, uh, people who uh, applied for this uh, special prayer application, you know, their cell phones started to ring with reminders, prayers for Peter. And for one hour, these people went on their knees in the place where they were, and for one hour, they were fervently praying for me. And oh, now the most God. important thing is that the time difference between Czech Republic in winter and Sudan was one hour. So actually, people were praying for 9 p.m. Sudanese time till 10 p.m. And that was the time when I could fall asleep as a result of their fervent and faithful prayers. Praise God. We're going to continue our conversation. Once again, we're talking with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We're going to find out more about how God attended to him during this season of persecution. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and will be available uh, tomorrow. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to understand more about what it is like to be in the presence of one's enemies in a, as a believer being persecuted and what role God plays and his people play in the midst of all of that, this is an excellent book to, uh, uh, to read again available tomorrow. You mentioned that during this time in which you are housed with these ISIS members, they had made the decision that they were going to waterboard you, had managed to uh, move from the cell that you had been in to one where there was running water. Um, but you were rescued out of that situation, uh, and one might find it difficult to see solitary confinement as a rescue, but d tell us a little bit about uh, your transfer into solitary confinement and whether or not you were able to ultimately have a copy of God's Word. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, taken out of the cell, I had this feeling like when Daniel was uh, taken out from the lion's den. Literally, there was the only difference that... You know, the uh, Lord has kept the mouth of the lions shut and their mouths were widely open when I was taken from their midst. They could not believe that I was taken away. And the next day, was actually, I was punished by being put in solitary confinement, which in one sense, you know, it is considered like a punishment in any prison. And even the ISIS people were afraid of being put into the solitary confinement. You know, one of them told me that he was there for five days and he he said, if they would not have released me, I would lose my mind, uh, sound mind. And I said to myself, you know, in one sense, for me, it was the first moment when I had actually uh, a free time to uh, speak out loud, to pray out loud, and to walk around. And for me, I considered that moment, the day when I was put on the solitary confinement, like the first liberation inside mm. of the country. Of course, I haven't been tortured by the guards uh, through, uh, they were fr uh, blowing freezing air on uh, um, in, into my cell, and uh, they took uh, my blanket away from me. So I was literally freezing, but I could experience the Lord's 
physical presence, you know, like a, mm -hmm. you know, warm coat around me in one moment and uh, spontaneously the words of my mouth were my Lord and my God, because, you know, I have felt, you know, that the Lord was with me in the cell and even my memory started to return and I was able to uh, start uh, even singing, you know, one song, you know, and that was the song, Thine Be the Glory, you know, this is actually a hymn, you know, that I have memorized when I was probably 15 or 16. 16 years old, and I could not remember the words of this song uh, when I was uh, heavily anemic and malnourished <clears throat> in the first uh, uh, two months uh, being with the ISIS people, because you know my memory was not working normally. When you're uh, when you lose that my that much blood, you know your uh, brain doesn't work normally. But in that moment, when I was for the first night in the solitary confinement, freezing from the cold, you know, uh, my memory w came back and I could start singing this hymn, Thine Be the Glory, you know, and the first two verses and the third one came about maybe two or three days later. I'm sure, you know, that the guards and maybe even the ISIS people, when they heard me singing the whole night, they thought that I got mad the first night in this solitary confinement already. So that was an amazing moment. And, you know, I was, for the first four months, I was praying, and my only prayer was to uh, be released and to go home. And uh, then I was transferred to another prison, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and the conditions were much worse there. You know, we were f maybe sometimes 50 people squeezed in the small room without a toilet, you know, that had maybe 25 square meters. And one night, the Lord has brought another 12 Eritrean refugees and I was led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. That was such a clear guidance of the Holy Spirit that I have experienced, uh, I would say, rarely in my life. But that night it was so obvious. So I went squeezed through the a crowd of people to them, and I shared the gospel to them. And on that night, the Lord has touched their hearts, and they all were ready to receive Christ. So I, I encouraged them to pray with me, and they all did, and all 12 of them committed their lives to Christ. And that was a turning point for me. From that moment, I really understood that I had to be in prison exactly four months and one day. Why? Because these people needed to hear the gospel oh, for me. And that changed my whole perspective, you know, on being in prison. And another month later, you know, I <clears throat> was another, because, you know, this uh, encouraged me to share the gospel even with the uh, fellow Muslims after these uh, uh, 12 Eritrean refugees on the next morning, they were actually transferred to the uh, next uh, another prison, and I could not see them anymore. Uh, but I started to share the gospel with all the other people, even the Muslims, right? And they uh, I was punished by the guards again by being put in solitary confinement. But that was all in pre uh, prepared by the Lord. And when I was transferred to the solitary confinement a week later, I have received the most precious gift in my life. You know, the, the representative of the Czech embassy came to visit me and he brought me the Czech Bible. So I was holding the word of God after five months of, of not having it. And I was so hungry after the word of God that I immediately started to read, you know, just standing at the window when the daylight was coming in and I could read from... Uh, 8 in the morning, maybe till 5 p.m., but I finished reading the Bible within 
three weeks from Genesis to Revelation. That just documents how hungry I was after the Word of God. You spent 445 days in prison. Um, what you may not have known during that time was that there were those who were praying for you as well as those who were advocating on your behalf for your release. What happened that ultimately resulted in your being released from prison? And looking back, how do you interpret all of these events? First of all, I would like to say that uh, we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who, when he opens, no one can close. When he closes, right. no one can open. So I um, uh, give the credit to the Lord for, you know, his timing and his sovereign will. You know, when readers will read the book from the first pages, they will realize how the Lord was miraculously preparing me for that time two and a half years before this experience, right. right? And I was already shared that how I felt and I how well, late uh, two months later, how I found out uh, why could I fall asleep peacefully when people were praying for me. So I was aware that people were praying for me. You know, later on, I was even aware that many people were uh, not only praying, but they were doing certain activities. They were signing online petition, you know, the uh, civic organization called Citizen Go, based in Spain, you know, and they has a worldwide network. They organized a petition of, uh, you know, for our release, and that petition had uh, nearly half a million of signatures uh, from various countries. You know that also the European uh, Parliament issued the resolution uh, demanding uh, uh, our release. You know, when I was uh, in prison already for nearly one year. Uh, the European Parliament issued a resolution demanding our release. And, uh, you know, I was uh, considered like being a spy of Czech Republic. But when the European Parliament issued this uh, resolution demanding our release, I was actually reclassified as a spy of the European Union. So that had this kind of uh, uh, interesting impact. But for us, knowing, you know, that uh, even from letters or from contacts with our families, it was tremendously encouraging uh, to know that not only that people were praying for us, but also they were doing some activities. Uh, they were not silent. They were writing letters to uh, Sudanese embassies around the world. And of course, you know, uh, I have not received those letters that were sent uh, either to me directly to prison. I only receive letters sent through the lawyer or through my family. But uh, the fact uh, that we knew about the uh, body of Christ, about the church around the world that were praying uh, for us and demanding our release was extremely encouraging. I remember, you know, that when I found out about uh, my home church uh, uh, and their prayers that actually caused me to be able to fall asleep at 9 p.m. every time. I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit. You know, how frequently someone asked me for prayers. And I said this kind of uh, usual typical Christian social phrase, you know, yes, yes, I will keep you in my prayers. But I was not uh, literally faithfully doing that. So I made this commitment when I will be released from prison, I will do this faithfully. And not only that, I will also encourage many other Christians in the free countries to pray for our brothers and sisters who are 
being persecuted or who are in prison. And of course, you know, I uh, knew that persecution is an essential part of the Christian life. But when, uh, you know, I was already in prison like maybe uh, seven months, you know, I was um, silently maybe feeling sorry for myself that I'm already in prison for seven months. But the Lord showed me before my spiritual eyes, you know, the pictures of three Eritrean pastors that have been in prison, two of them in 2004, one of them in 2005. So they were already 11 or 12 years in prison. And I was feeling feeling sorry for myself, you know, that I'm in prison seven months. So after this experience, I deliberately started to pray for them and not only for them, for other Christians, you know, my uh, prison uh, cell walls were actually divided into different segments where I have uh, visualize, you know, some people from various countries, from China, from Nigeria, from Eritrea or Central Asia. And I was uh, praying faithfully for them uh, because I, and that actually helped me to uh, uh, experience and view my burden as an easy one compared to what they had to go through because of their persecution. Well, once again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and is available for purchase tomorrow. I wish we had more time because there's so much more that could be said about your experience that challenges all of us to take seriously our connection with believers who are suffering persecution for their faith and our connection with them, that we have the opportunity to superintend, to pray for them. Uh, and to intercede for them. Uh, Peter Yashek, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless you. you. You too. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book to gain an understanding of what many of our brothers and sisters are facing for the sake of and the cause of Christ. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I so enjoyed my conversation with Peter Yashik, um, who spent 445 days in a prison in Sudan. And I wish we'd had more time to give you the opportunity to hear more of his story. But as I mentioned in our conversation, his book is out tomorrow. And I would encourage every believer who wants to have a, a better understanding of what persecuted life for many believers across the globe is like. This is a first-hand account that I think is eye-opening, and it also reminds us of the significant role we can play in praying for those uh, who are persecuted and imprisoned, in advocating for those who are persecuted and imprisoned. And as you heard a moment ago, his story ended well. He, in fact, was sentenced to life in prison, so there, there was no possibility for him to ever escape that prison in Sudan. He had resigned himself to this is the area that God has for me in ministry. But when his purpose had been completed, he was released. And again, 445 days. The book Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. I would encourage you to pick that up. The book is published by Salem Books. Well, tomorrow we're going to share a program with Rich Jones um, Pastor Jones and Associate are going to talk a bit about the challenge the church is facing in this hour and how we should approach it in a way that is Christ-honoring, is faithful to Scripture and what we're told um, we ought to do in the midst of challenges in whatever culture or time we're in. So we're looking forward uh, to that. And on uh, Wednesday, we're going to share uh, uh, the Christian outlook 
as it focused on our pandemic and how people are navigating uh, this uh, season as well. So looking forward to sharing that with you. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.